0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the Seymour Hersh story on how exactly the Nord Stream attacks happened. We'll be covering uh how the other side views the Russo-Ukrainian war, and I'm not talking about the Russians, and then we'll... Talk about Biden's State of the Union. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Russia launches its largest missile barrage in Ukraine since the war began firing 71 missiles, all within the span of like a day. Of which, Ukraine claims to have shot down 61, and we're hearing stories now of Ukrainians bringing power back onto some places around the country. I have a feeling that that's just selective journalism, and that more places are now without electricity, and are living in the Stone Ages, or at the very least in the Dark Ages, in a literal sense, given lack of electricity. And, you know, further proof, if we needed any, that Russia is in fact not running out of ammunition, they are not running out of missiles, like news, or agencies, news companies keep reporting on. And I'm not entirely sure why, why they would keep doing this to themselves and their own credibility by betting on Russia running out of ammunition. Like, it's one thing to say that you believe Russia's going to lose the war. It's another thing to say that Russia's going to run out of ammunition. And it's it's a bit of an, a stretch even if you're on the pro Ukraine side of this argument to say that the Russians are somehow going to run out of ammunition. It's we can clearly see that they're not running out and even though the Ukrainians might have less to work with than the Russians, they haven't run out of ammunition either. So I I don't get where this idea that Russia's going to run out of ammunition is coming from. But if any p- more proof was needed that that's not going to be the case, they're firing the biggest barrage that they've done since they began this strategic missile bombing campaign. And we'll see if they have larger barrages in store. Uh, and I'm, We're approaching the one-year anniversary of the war, so there is speculation that they might choose that day to launch their offensive that we've been speculating about, and... We, we can see that they're preparing for with the masses of troops that they're building up on Ukraine's frontiers in the south and the center near Kharkov and in the north in Belarus, where they even have integrated units between Russian and Belarusian forces. I'm not entirely sure if they will on the anniversary. Russia is big on anniversaries, but I don't know if they'll I don't know if they'll be, you know, that big on anniversaries to basically jumped the gun on something that they've been preparing for for quite a while. I think, if anything, we're going to see it happen in spring. And the reason I say that is because the mud. Because winter is... Yeah, it's been pretty warm, you know? They haven't had that solid freeze, not even in Ukraine. It's really just been mud. So perhaps they will wait until it dries up more... And then they'll attack. Now, when that happens, I'm thinking March to May. That's a solid time frame, I think. Cause they're not just gonna sit there looking at the Ukrainians forever. Certainly not with these hundreds of thousands of troops. Eventually they're going to attack and they're gonna evap they're gonna cause everything in front of them to just evaporate. But I don't think they're gonna attack. On the anniversary, no, I could be horribly wrong in <laughs> just two weeks' time, but i don't I don't think they're gonna do that. Uh, I don't think that they will, but that's something being speculated on now, uh namely by that article in the hill that i'll we'll get to later on in the story, but that's the barrage we found another Chinese balloon which has been shot down over Canada this time no, conveniently they didn't wait for it to get all the way across Canada and into the Atlantic again. No, they just shut it down. So we can do that for Canada, but we can't do it for ourselves. I mean, I guess I approve, but, you know, perhaps we, if it's that big of a threat, right? If it's that big of a threat, I approve of defending the sovereignty of our neighbors. That's that's the one line that I'm willing to accept for a foreign intervention, is when outside powers intervene and Really interfere with the sovereignty of our neighbors and that's North and South America But if it's this big of a threat to where we're, we're mobile we're scrambling fighter jets to shoot these things down and They and they use the f-22 to shoot down the one that flew over the entire United States the most expensive fighter plane we have They they couldn't just get a f-15 or f-16 to do something but if it's that big of a threat Shoot it down over the Pacific. I mean, goodness, it's we we have the most extensive array of spy satellites on the planet. We talk about the Chinese spying on you. We spy more, and we, and uh, in a scary way, we spy better. You're talking. We just we just let the balloon fly over here, and this one of the major reasons I just don't believe it's actually that much of a threat. I am more inclined to believe it is a weather balloon than a spy balloon. So though it's that much of a national security threat, either you're committing treason by letting it fly over our airspace like this, unopposed, across the entire continental United States, or it's not that big of a threat at all, and you're just hyping this up into something that it isn't. That's what I think. And the actions taken by both the United States and Canada lead me to believe this. Israel has conducted an airstrike on the Gaza Strip, to which they've earned the condemnation of their neighbors. Again, uh, no course correction for Israel, so we'll see what the future holds for them. Uh, the death toll from the Turkey-Syria earthquakes has reached 33,000 as per yesterday when I round the what was then the up-to-date numbers. It could be a little bit higher than that now, although I imagine the death toll won't climb too much higher as the earthquakes have ended, but the... Recovery efforts are underway, and lots of countries are sending aid. You have, specifically, you had the Qatari emir showing up. You had Chinese rescue teams showing up in Turkey. You had Greece's foreign minister showing up. They all arrived in Turkey to offer their support. And it was a a bit of an odd reminder, but I guess a reminder nonetheless that Turkey and Qatar are allies. And I guess stronger allies than NATO, because... The only only country that bothered to show up for Turkey was Greece. So, you know, I guess that really says a lot about who their friends are. It really does. Qatar, China, and I don't know if we can count Greece as a friend, but certainly a country that would like to be friendly to Turkey rather than an opposition to Turkey. And that's it. Ah, that's a that's an eye-opener right there turkey's list of friends is a lot shorter than nato would suggest their their presence in nato would suggest but i guess it's understandable given how the eu treats them and how we treat them we we support the kurds and the kurds don't like the turks and the turks don't like the kurds and there was a bombing in istanbul so I guess we really shouldn't be surprised that this is the way it shakes out. But I am interested in seeing how this turkey Qatar alliance unfolds going forward. Especially now when the Turks are able to see who their real friends are as well in this time of crisis. We'll see how, the, how things develop from here. We'll see. We will see. Ukraine has claimed that Russian missiles, uh, and this is a part of that broader missile barrage, they claim that Russian missiles from a Russian naval vessel with you know, fired from a Russian naval vessel crossed into Moldovan and Romanian airspace before hitting parts of Western Ukraine. Now, Romania has straight up denied the claim that these missiles crossed over its airspace. Moldova, however, has corroborated the claim saying that a missile flew over Transnistria. Transnistria is the the breakaway province of Moldova that aligns itself more with Russia than Moldova. At the time, they aligned themselves more with the Soviet Union than Moldova, but now it's Russia. So, Moldova says that missiles flew over Transnistria and into Ukraine, and they have, they're upset about that, they still consider Transnistria to be a part of them, and, you know, it's probably the reason why the missiles flew over Transnistria, and not Romania. Transnistria is effectively a Russian enclave, if we're being perfectly honest with ourselves. So, that's probably why the missile took that specific flight path and not anything else. But the Ukrainians are not exactly the most trustworthy people when it comes to claims about who, who the Russian missiles hit. They said that Russian missiles hit Poland. If you remember way back and everyone got up into a, a t- whipped up into a tizzy over that, oh the, the Russians are attacking NATO members. we need to protect our NATO members and our allies and oh uh, Poland, oh my goodness uh, my country uh, And then when everyone found out it was Ukraine, suddenly everyone got really, really quiet and no one wanted to treat the Ukrainians with the same with that same energy that they had for the Russians. And I thought it was very strange how that goes. But, that was a different day. But, the Ukrainians aren't exactly the most trustworthy people when it comes to reporting on where these Russian missiles land. They, as we can see here with Romania completely denying the claim that it flew over Romania's airspace. But, if you're Ukraine, you want as many countries involved in the war against Russia as you can get. So, they lie. (laughs) And, that's what that is. We have European leaders, since we're still talking about Ukraine, we have European leaders seeking to make Ukraine a member state of the EU within two years. I don't think there's going to be a Ukraine in two years. I don't think there's going to be a Ukraine in one year. I believe this year might be the last time that they get to celebrate their independence some people think that Ukraine's gonna end up being a rump state. I have maintained the position. I don't think there's gonna be a Ukraine at all when the war is over. And if I am right, then this, when this Russian offensive happens, it will be the death of Ukraine. And if most others who believe Ukraine's gonna lose are correct in their assumption that Ukraine will end up being a rump state and Russia's just gonna take the entire Black Sea coastline, well, then they technically get to keep their independence, although I don't think they'll be completely independent. My guesstimate is that if that's the way it goes, they'll be rolled into a union state with Russia, so they'll eventually be become one with Russia as well, just like how Russia has that agreement with Belarus. It's a peaceful annexation. And they'd be in perfect position to impose such conditions on Ukraine. After having abolished the Ukrainian army. By force of arms, of course. So, we'll see how this goes down. But, uh, there's not going to be a a Ukraine in the EU. That's just fantasy. And they know that this is fantasy. The process of getting into the EU takes longer than the Ukrainians have. They don't have that kind of time. And I feel a lot of people are going to be in for a very rude awakening come the summer. Uh, The summer's going to be a hot one. Very, very hot. And last but not least, we have French farmers forming a tractor convoy similar to the American and Canadian trucker convoys that ran around the country and blockaded the roads and really just impairing business as usual to get people to pay attention to their plight. We have farmers in France forming a tractor convoy to protest the ban on pesticides that France wants to implement. And, you know, it seems a lot of countries are just hell-bent on self-destruction. Namely, countries in the West. So you can see one of the more practical reasons why I would not like to be a part of any Western collective identity. I'd prefer an American identity. Over Western any day, and, and that's with all the problems we have we and trust me, we <laughs> we have issues to say the least, but I am American, not Western, so you, that's my take on this. If the West wants to commit suicide, let leave them be so long as I still have my America. I'll be perfectly fine. I will be perfectly fine. but that is the rapid fire. And we will get into the meat of today's story in just a moment. Alrighty, time to get into the meat of today's episode, and we'll start with the Seymour Hirsch story on the Nord Stream attacks. So last week, after all these months of blaming Russia for the attack on Nord Stream 1 and 2, the pipelines, the natural gas pipelines running from Russia to Germany, owned by Germany, but the gas comes from Russia... Uh, We finally got what amounts to an admission of guilt from the United States, and an unlikely accomplice. Or at least that's what I thought, until I, you know, looked a little closer at the story, and realized that the U.S. officially still denies any responsibility for the attack, and that the European governments, namely Sweden and the EU, are still, uh, investigating what happened. Which means they have no intention of actually disclosing the actual results because we all know who did it they're gonna keep blaming russia of course but we know who did it it was the united states who else would it be the russians could have just cut off the gas and saved themselves the trouble like we are prone to doing shit like that not the russians if the Russians wanted to cut Germany and all of Europe off from their gas, they just wouldn't send it to you. And that'd be the end of the story. And we'd all bitch and moan and complain. And and that'd be it. That'd be the end of the story. So, I am in no way inclined to believe that Russia was the one responsible for the attacks. It just, It's just not there. It's just not there. So what is there? Oh, I'll tell you, it's the United States. But, this story, released by Seymour Hersh, has given us one hell of a picture. He has painted one hell of a picture. It's a believable picture, but I have to say, it is an unconfirmed one. Now, he claims, in his story, one, that the U.S. was responsible for the attack, But what's more interesting about it is his explanation on the details of how that attack took place. So, Hirsch says that a U.S. diver team went down and planted C4 on the pipeline. However, he believes that they did not detonate it. And so they go down, they plant the C4, come back up, they leave. He believes from that point on, a Norwegian plane dropped a sonar buoy which was capable of sending out signals underwater that's a sonar buoy and he believes that this buoy then emitted specific sonar frequencies that triggered the C4 causing a remote detonation blowing up the outer layer of cement that covers the Nord Stream pipelines and thus damaging the actual pipelines to the point where you saw those That massive, mile-wide plume of gas uh, in the form of bubbles coming up to the surface in the Baltic Sea. The White House has denounced Seymour as a conspiracy theorist and labeled the story as fiction. And the fiercity of their denial uh, leads me to believe more than this just might be the case. But, again, it's unconfirmed. And I guess... (laughs) I guess with a story that's that believable, whether true or not, you know, again, it's not confirmed, but it's believable, it is only natural that a story that believable, the U.S. would continue its denial of its involvement, and would try then to discredit the story, especially since the story directly implicates it in the Nord Stream attack that it so fervently denies involvement in. And people say that because... We have to deny it, because that would be an act of war on Russia, blowing up these pipelines. And that's sort of the concern here, is that if it, if it's proven definitively that the United States was responsible, well, that's we've committed an act of war against Russia. No. We haven't. Unless you believe bombing Russian gas is a war, uh, moving through a pipeline as an act of war against Russia... But no. It's more interesting than that. We would not have committed an act of war against Russia if Russia doesn't own the pipelines. They own the gas, but they don't own the pipeline. So that'd be like blowing up the oil on an oil tanker. Not harming the tanker itself, but just blowing up the barrels of oil coming from Arabia. And, oh, that's an act of war on Arabia. No, 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 no. It's not an act of war on Russia. Because Germany owns the pipelines. So this attack on Nord Stream 1 and 2, because Germany owns both of them, would actually be, and, well, I say would, it is, an act of war against Germany, not Russia. And that changes the picture completely. And now, it actually makes just the slightest bit more sense why the United States would so fervently deny Involvement in this, even though it didn't. Because it's not the Russians that they're afraid of, it's Germany. They're afraid of Germany breaking away from NATO. And this would be one hell of a reason to do so. Here, so the supposed ally, your supposed protector, tried to throw you into the Stone Age this winter. People could have frozen to death. People, it's very real. People could have I mean the Germans sacrificed their industry to keep that from happening by prioritizing civilian needs of gas but people could have died due to the cold in a way that we haven't seen since the 1800s it that's a possibility you sabotage german industry you sabotage german civilian life like And you sabotage the German economy. What type of ally does that? No ally that I need. And I'm certain that that's how the Germans will feel about this when they find out definitively that, yes, it was the United States. So, I believe... NATO is on borrowed time. Because there's there's no way you as a German can accept that and stick to this alliance. If your protector, if your ally is willing to sabotage you to get at this country that they want to force you to fight, well, may, perhaps I'm better off siding with the Russians then, huh? I get all my energy from Russia anyway. I do all my I do so much trade with Russia anyway uh, w- Germany has always had the best moments in its history when it worked with Russia and the worst moments in its history when it worked against Russia, so perhaps it'd be in our interest our German interest to work with the Russians. How about that because there, there's just no way you as a respectable German person can accept this and stay a part of this alliance. This attack proves the hostility of NATO to Germany. And it goes back to that old adage. What is the purpose of NATO? To keep the Russians out. To keep the Germans down, the Russians out, and the Americans in. Keep Germany down. And we can see that clear as day with the attacks. And it's only a matter of time until the Germans, you know, find out, and I say find out as if it wasn't obvious, but a lot of people like to believe it was Russia. And if they don't believe it was Russia, they like to believe it's a mystery. It can't be a mystery forever. Eventually, we have to find out who the culprit was. And when it is found out that the culprit, it was the United States, and perhaps Norway, if Seymour Hersh's story holds true, or true enough, then what reason do you as a German have to stay in NATO? The Russians haven't attacked you. The Russians want to make deals with you. The Russians want you to buy their gas. The Russians want to work with you economically. The Russians want to provide you all the energy that Germany does not have. NATO wants to bomb your pipelines. NATO wants to force you to send your tanks into Ukraine against Russia. NATO wants you and I guess to a larger extent as well the EU wants you to subsidize the EU and all the other smaller member states so you have to foot the bill for everyone else it's like, it's like a, a miniature case of what America does around the world Germany does for Europe they foot the bill for everything so if the, benef- the there's no military benefit to being in this alliance and you're in fact there's no economic benefit because you're being sabotaged by these people. Well then what's the point? What, Why stay? And that's a question. That the Germans will inevitably have to start asking themselves. Now what their answer is going to be. I can't tell you. That's up for Germany to decide. But they will ask that question. And that process will be uncomfortable. Particularly for all the, the free riders in Europe. Particularly for France. France. Who wants to dominate the EU, but they I don't think they want an independent Germany. Not a really independent Germany. And though I would say America, but not really America, more like Washington and the Pentagon, who want to play these grand chess games on the board, they don't want to see a truly independent Germany exercising an independent foreign policy. Because that would mean that they'd cozy up to Russia. They'd work with Russia. They'd have a Nord Stream 3 and 4 and 5. And they'd have cheap energy. Cheap energy that the rest of Europe wouldn't have. Germany would be a gas hub. And then everyone else in Europe who wanted Russian gas, oh, you have to get it from Germany. If you're in Northern Europe, you got to get your Russian gas through Germany. That's the only way. If you're in Southern Europe, you got to get your gas through Turkey. That's the only way. If you're in Central Europe, well, it'll, it'll be the best of times, but you, you can get it from Russia directly, or you can get it from Russia, Germany, and Turkey. Either way. But that's the type of thing that the Germans would have opened to them working with Russia. Quite frankly, Germany, it's in Germany's interest to work with Russia. And that's how the world would work if we lived in a normal world. We don't. We live in the NATO world, the U.S. alliance system. Where countries don't really follow their own interests, because it's the United States acting for them anyway. At America's expense, of course. But if countries were allowed to behave like normal countries, Germany would be buddying up with Russia economically, and the French would be buddying up with Russia militarily, because they want to contain Germany. The British would have trade all around the world, instead of hyper-focusing on trade in Europe... And we'd have a world that made sense. Instead of this bizarro world where Germany is part of an alliance with countries that are hostile to Germany, so hostile to Germany, that they're willing to bomb Germany's pipelines to get at Russia. Like, I just can't help but feel that NATO, like Ukraine, is on borrowed time. And while this story, the Seymour Hersh story, is an interesting one to look at, in terms of how the specifics might have played out. We can't confirm that this is how it went down. But. All right. what, what this story shows me. Is that the North Stream th- stuff hasn't gone away. Like I imagine the people who carried out the attacks. Within the United States. Expected or maybe wanted it to. But it certainly hasn't sent the message. That they probably thought that it would. Instead, we have a lingering story that sticks around. And eventually, the finger is, that's being pointed at Russia and is now being pointed up in the air. Oh, we don't know who it is. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Eventually, that finger is going to come back down and it's going to point at the United States. And what happens then? Does Germany stay in NATO? Does Germany stay? Or do they go? Especially when Russia wins the war and it becomes clear that all of NATO is ineffective against Russia. So why side with an ineffective alliance against the country that just beat you all? Why not side with them? They are offering us deals. You're offering us suicide. That's a question that the Germans are going to ask. It'll be a very interesting one to see them debate amongst themselves. And I imagine it'll be even more interesting to see what their answer will be to that question in the end. But, since we're, uh, I'll use that as a semi-solid transition, since we brought up the war, and what the war's consequences are going to be in Europe, namely the attacks and the, the measures we took during the war to try to fight an economic war against Russia and Europe at the same time, now we have to think about the military side of this. But I wanted to look at this from a a very different perspective, because I saw an article from The Hill, and as I read through it, I was intrigued. I was very intrigued, Uh, because of the article. It was primarily highlighting the recent spike in Russia's casualties, uh, as reported by Ukraine. And at first, I thought this was just another interesting point of perspective, on what the words, well what, well, what the term, a lot, means for the, the combatant powers, and just how different they are. Ukraine loses tens of thousands, uh, and no one bats an eye. The Russians, they lose 60 in this one bombing on a, a barracks, and that's, oh my goodness, the Russians have lost so many people. And here, we have claims that the Russians have lost uh, a thousand in a day. Now, that's a big number, but but it's just very interesting how different the term a lot is for the two sides. Russia losing 60 to 100 or even 1,000, men that's a lot. 60, 60 to 100, that's a lot. They lose 1,000. Oh my goodness, the... The Russians, uh, they're about to have the back broken out of their, their military. The Russian military is going to collapse. And it's this big story. Russia loses a 1,000 casualties. It's a big story. It's a massive story. Ukraine loses, well, uh, with the numbers we're going off of, 17 an average of net losses. An average net loss of 17,000 men a month. And no coverage. Ukraine's going to win. Russia's going to lose. And that's, that's the story. Russia loses 1,000 men, and it's the end of the world for them. I thought that this was just going to be another one of those very interesting points of perspective on how differently the war is viewed, namely how the performance of the powers are viewed by various news outlets. But then, as the article delved into what they believed the Russian casualty figures were for the war as a whole, I realized that it's just a little bit more than an interesting point of perspective. I realized that this is how the other side of the argument views the conflict. You know, those folks who believe that Russia is losing and that Ukraine will win. So, I'll go over what the article says to give you a better understanding of what I'm talking about here. The article, running with info from the British Defense Ministry, which was really just taken from Ukraine's general staff, which is why some of these numbers appeared questionable to me at first, perhaps they're true, perhaps they're not, but they're coming from Ukraine's general staff, so there is a bias, but the general staff of Ukraine said that Russia was losing. 824 casualties a day on average for the past week or so, and they stated that this number was four times higher than what the Ukrainians were reporting during the summer Uh, in terms of Russian losses a day on average, which if it's four times higher at 824, then that's about 206 casualties a day is what we're talking about for the average during the summer. And so they're reporting on these casualties four times higher than what the Ukrainian general staff was reporting last summer in June and July, about 200 a day. So we're dealing with 824 casualties a day, according to them. And during this time frame, this last week, they say that Ukrainian forces had managed to kill over a thousand Russian soldiers in a single day in one of those, one of the days during that week. And they compared these numbers, namely that 1,000 figure, to the Russian casualties that Ukraine was reporting from last February when Russia's invasion began. And back then, Ukraine was reporting that there were around 1,140 Russian casualties a day. Now, while it is worth mentioning that I haven't actually talked much about Russia's losses aside from Vague statements on them being low, and I think I mentioned like once or twice the number being around twenty to thirty thousand dead. When I and I'm, I think that was when I brought up the eight to one losses Ukraine was taking back when we first got the those numbers that we've been working with the one hundred and ninety thousand combat troops, which would mean a law lo- a net loss of one hundred and sixty thousand, which we've been working with. <laughs> Ever since, and $1 to eight. uh, That would mean the Russians had lost anywhere from 20 to 30,000. Well, if it's a specific, a direct one eight to one loss ratio in Russia's favor, then that would mean straight up 20,000 losses. But I, 20 to 30,000, would be better, a better guesstimate, in my opinion. But even though I haven't really talked about Russia's losses much up until well, even now. These are some very different numbers from what I've been working with in my head. Twenty to thirty thousand dead is one thing, but the total casualty figure that the Hill put out for what they believed, well not they what the Ukrainian general staff believed Russia's numbers were at. Uh at its literally 100,000 more than the number that I'm working with. Like, the total casualty that the Ukrainian general staff is they're working with, and that they have put out as their official figure, is that the Russians have, a- after this past week, have suffered a loss of 133,000 soldiers. Uh, and I- I'll be honest with you, and you can probably... Uh, guess this already based on my stance on the war. I see that number one hundred and thirty two thousand and I press X to doubt <laughs> I Press X to doubt and at first I was confused as to where they even got though that number from I Still don't know but I took the numbers that they were running with they were said that Russia was losing a thousand men in February and that that number dropped down to around 200 in June to July. And so I said, you know what? Well, we'll just assume that they're correct right up until the beginning of June, right? And the war begins on February 24th, so there's only like five days left in February. And I, I said, you know, we'll just we'll just assume that the casualties stayed 1,000 a day for April and May. So that's 65 days of just 1,000 men dying a day which no one was reporting on back during that period of time. And certainly if that was the case, the Ukrainians would have been saying so, but, you know, we'll just, we'll just pretend, we'll assume that that's the case. 65,000, 1,000 per 65 days, 65,000. And then once you get to June, you start counting the 200 a day figure right up until around yesterday, which would be, about twelve days away from the anniversary of the war. And when you do that when you do that, and I think I maybe uh Yeah yeah. When you do that, you get sixty five thousand for that first phase, and then you get around fifty eight thousand for the rest of the war. Sixty five thousand to begin with, uh for February to the beginning of June, and then from June till now, you get around fifty-eight thousand. If they're taking two hundred a day from June onwards, and they were taking a thousand a day before, well, sixty-five thousand plus fifty-eight thousand—that's one hundred twenty-three thousand. So even when I crank the numbers like that, it still falls short of the tally that they're giving us, which is one hundred thirty-three thousand. But perhaps i mean it's close it's uh, but i have no clue where they're getting these numbers from because i I just assumed 65 days of losing a thousand men a day which i'm not entirely convinced that the russians have been taking losses like that i i wasn't and until zeluzhny came out I wasn't convinced that the Ukrainians were taking losses like that either. Like even now, even now, it—it's it, uh, uh, just—it's more believable. It seems almost like projection. Like I'm—I'm I'm struggling to put it into words here. That it, it really feels like projection. There, the Ukrainians are reporting their losses as. Russia's losses and they're reporting the Russian losses as their own losses they it feels like they, they're trying to flip the script or to bare minimum try to Create this sense of an equivalency between the losses But while I might doubt the if their tally of hundred thirty three thousand If it's true and it very well could be you know If it's true that the loss Is actually at one hundred and thirty thousand that would put Russia's losses their casualties much closer to that of Ukraine's casualties, which, as of now, the working estimate here on the podcast, with those numbers, those lovely numbers we've been working with, uh, puts Ukraine's losses at around 187,000 casualties. And that's only counting the net losses of their combat troop numbers, which means the actual casualty rate is undoubtedly higher. Uh, So there's that. And in two weeks, we're going to have to add on another 17,000 to that. So it'll be uh, over the 200,000 mark once we get there. And it's an average. So there's a very real possibility that the losses have just slowed down from what they were. But we don't know that, especially when we see the Ukrainians just feeding troops into Bakhmut. But... These are the numbers we've been working with, and again, this goes off of Zaluzhny and Zelensky cooperating 190,000 combat troops uh, back in December, which would represent a decline of 160,000 troops from their original 350,000. And then there was me assuming 10,000 additional losses for the month of December, rather than the monthly average, which, considering that that Zaluzhny interview was December 3rd, would have put the monthly average losses at... 17,777 a month, because 160,000 divided by 9 months, rather than 10, which is the number I was going off of, and just assume 10,000 for the rest of December. So, understand, we are still lowballing Ukraine's losses here, just with a somewhat more accurate view of what those losses are, and playing with that number the best we can to get an accurate view here. And it's still not going to be accurate, and not until the war is over, but, you know, it's something. I mean, we, we can't even account for their, their actual casualty rate. This is just net losses here. This is literally just net losses of purely combat troops. We can't count the losses of their the, the wounded. We can't count that. We don't know how many men that they're training per month to, to combat-capable status, which means that we don't know how many of them that they are losing every month to make this net negative of 17,000 men possible. Because the, the larger that number is, the, the number of men that they're training up, the larger that number is, the bigger the actual casualty figure ends up being if they're still at a net negative of 17,000 men. So understand this is the lowball, right? And we get this from Ziluzhani Zelensky. And it's partially corroborated by Ursula von der Leyen, The president of the European Commission, who, while giving a speech to the European Parliament, talking about how they needed to support Ukraine, she brought up a figure of over 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers who were dead. Not casualties, dead. And since the number of wounded is usually higher than the actual number of dead, 160,000 casualties in December, because she said this back in the end of November. So these two numbers come out right around the same time. They partially cooperate each other. It's more likely that the number of wounded is way higher than 100,000, which is the number of dead that Ursula von der Leyen's reporting. So, like, the more I try to delve into these numbers, the more I'm comfortable with and almost horrified by the fact that, that what we're working with is the low ball here. We're working with the low ball. But. Uh, and I was lowballing them even further than that before, until these numbers started, just got dropped on me. And I'm, I'm probably going to have to revise the estimate up again later on. But my goodness, if this is the lowball, what the actual numbers might be will probably horrify us all when the war is over. But maybe, just maybe, it's also true that the Russians are taking greater casualties than I believe that they are. Perhaps they have taken 133,000 losses. Which would make the numbers more comparable. Not nearly as comparable. Because again, we cannot account for the total number of wounded that the Ukrainians have. We can only count this net loss of combat troops. But perhaps, perhaps the war is Closer in terms of losses than I am inclined to believe, and that's always a possibility. And it's been a while, I'll say say this much, it's been a while since I've familiarized myself with what the pro-Ukrainian side thought about the conflict. So, though it was an interesting comparison of perspectives, there's always the possibility that I'm the one getting the story wrong if my recent experiences with giving Ukraine the benefit of the doubt or anything to go by, and me having to revise their losses upwards, and me not believing that they were having an internal power structure, struggle, me not believing Ukraine's leader Zelensky was losing his faculties, and then I had to. <laughs> and, and it's crazy that giving the benefit of the doubt uh, ended up being the reason I'm wrong. <laughs> Even though I, I never give these people benefit of the doubt. <laughs> That, that's the irony in all this. I I'm like, okay, Russia's gonna win, but I don't believe that part about Ukraine. Okay, the they're, they're not that bad. All right, they're Nazis, but they're not insane. And then we find out that this guy is insane. I'm like, okay, okay, you, you know what, <laughs> you you know what, I'll just I'll just go mind my business. Um, that's a, it's a very comical irony that that's how I end up having to make revi- revisions and corrections to my stance here, but it's always a possibility that I'm getting the story wrong, which is why it's good to listen to multiple sources. But, but that is that story. Now we'll get into uh, Biden's State of the Union here. I listened to it with my friends and we had fun making fun of him, but now I have to make fun of him just a little bit less. And only a little. So we'll just get into this and I'll tell you about some of the things he said. So he opened his speech by talking about overcoming COVID 19. Uh, and really, it's more of a self inflicted wound, which is in that we didn't need to respond to the virus in the way that we did. The entire world didn't. But everyone decided that lockdowns were the way to go, even though. Those usually don't end well, unless you're quarantining just the sick. That's the only time lockdowns work, is when you're quarantining the sick, not the entire healthy population, forcing them indoors with no sunlight in environments where they're next to people, where it's easier for them to get sick. And you had had artificial time slots that stores and businesses were allowed to be open, which when you think about it also helps to increase the infection rate uh and we won't even get into how it makes sense for walmart to stay open but the small bit walmart where hundreds of people go in every day but the small business that maybe gets uh, is lucky to get 50 to 100 a day uh they're not allowed to stay open we won't even get into those types of contradictions and that the way that that would increase the infection rate by shutting down small businesses and keeping big business open that already had more people and more customers to begin with. Again, the overcrowding there. But the time frames. That businesses were allowed to be open. By limiting the time frame to just like 10 in the morning to 8 o'clock at night. Well, congratulations. Or was it 8 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night? Ah, whatever. We 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 don't like that period of time anyway. But when you do that, all the people that would have walked, wandered into Walmart at two or three o'clock in the morning to grab, I don't know, milk and some cereal and some snacks, well now they have to do it at the same time that everyone else is doing it, between eight to ten. So you have people that would have gone to the store at different times being forced to go in all at the same time. You've compressed the time frame that people are even able to go to the store which means that people who otherwise would not have been in contact with each other ended up being in contact with each other because they had to go there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to go. So policies like that, combined with lockdown where, okay, I'm not allowed to leave my house. So if any one of us gets sick, we all just get sick because we're all in the same house together. Okay, that that's a great idea. Oh, and we're not allowed to go outside, so there's no... You don't get vitamin D. You... It just So much bad health policy dictated that and made it perhaps a lot worse than it needed to be for a virus that wasn't as deadly as it could have been, right? And we're lucky that it wasn't. It's a good thing that it wasn't. I mean, it's no one likes that a million people died during that period, but it objectively could have been worse. It really could have. And we're lucky that it wasn't. But we decided to shoot ourselves in the foot with how we responded to it. And the response was worse than the actual virus. The, the The treatment was worse than the disease, so to speak. And it was something I noticed over the entire COVID-19 stuff, where you had people taking to the streets and it was it was this consistent theme throughout the news cuz this is right when i started consistently reading the news for the sake of the podcast and it's like oh they're they're protesting the government's response to covid oh we we we're, we're not pleased with your response to covid or we're, we're and it was always this lack of satisfaction with their response to covid oh you bungled the response Oh, you you didn't handle you we don't like your handling of the covid that that's all the the media painted these protests. And to a an certain extent, that, that it was true that that's a gripe that people had. But when you think about that and you realize every government had the same exact response to COVID-19, which was lockdowns, what you're really saying is that lockdowns themselves was the bungling of the pandemic response. And that would be true. If everyone handles the response the same way and everyone has the same issue with the response well it's not the government it's the response it's not oh he just didn't do it right it's the response this prescribed response that the who and the cdc and the various other government agencies in our government and others and international institutions approved of at the time we were all upset with the lockdowns And we all considered the lockdowns to be bungling the response to the pandemic, which it was. But none of us had, or at least most of us, hadn't really thought that far through to see it that way. Thankfully, now we're on the other side of that hysteria. But it's just something interesting to think back on. But back to Biden's uh, State of the Union. He opened by talking about overcoming COVID, creating 800,000 jobs and reducing inflation. I'll press X to doubt on that one. He talked about microchips and the need to manufacture them in the United States, which I agree with. He said, quote, we're going to make sure the supply chain for America begins in America, end quote, which is something that I also agree with, which is why I wanted to quote it. I decided not to use too many quotes here because. um, eh. What can I say? It's. Not the very quotable speech, as if I spent as much time quoting his speech to bring up the points, I'd be here all day. No, and, and any, any any other time, any other time, uh, don't don't <laughs> don't let me pull a Biden here, but any other time, I I would go grab the quotes, but uh, I think I think I covered it pretty decently with my responses here. But anyway, he says we're gonna. Make sure the supply chain for America begins in America, which is something I agree with on a level perhaps far beyond whatever he's imagining and whatever anyone else in Congress is imagining. I envision an American industrial giant, uh, which has a moderate degree of self-sufficiency, especially in manufacturing capacity. Now, my line of thinking here is far in excess of anything you're going to get out of your politicians. But you know what? This is a solid step, especially considering it's coming out of someone I don't agree with on a lot. I am no fan of Biden, but I agree with this. We need our supply chains to, at the very least, begin in the United States. So, I'll just give him props there. But another point of his speech, another major point, was infrastructure. Now, he was namely talking about bridges, roads, high-speed internet, I myself would have added high-speed rail to that, you know, energy infrastructure, like pipelines, but, yeah, you know, beggars, I suppose can't be choosers, but uh, I I would prefer that if the government's going to do infrastructure projects, and I believe that that is the role of government in an economy, to build large-scale infrastructure projects, and then let private business do the rest, if you're going to do this, it has to be big. It has to be national. We need the government for these national projects because America is a gargantuan country. And it's in our own strategic interest for our country to be closely knit together. That takes railroads and infrastructure. And I believe high-speed rail would do very well to that end. Uh, So he talked about infrastructure, need for bridges and funding, and his infrastructure bill... Then he got into the whole make the rich pay their fair share thing. Now, me personally, when I become rich, I ain't trying to pay no taxes. (laughs) And I'll be honest with you no, I'm not trying to pay taxes right now either. So rich me and current me have that in common. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people would rather not pay taxes. And, you know, there's the solution right there. Why... Tax people when you could just not tax people. Not taxing people is the American thing to do. Not make the rich pay their fair share. What does that accomplish? You're just going to put more money into the pockets of a government that doesn't know how to handle money. Which is the reason we're in this multi-trillion deficit. Which is the reason we have $31 trillion of debt. What does tax the rich do for the worker? I know it's a, a popular left or socialist policy. But what does that do for the worker? What does that do for regular people? It it doesn't do anything. All it does is penalize you for doing well in society so that you can make people feel good, except it doesn't do anything for them because the money goes to the government. And then you have to hope and pray that the government will do something useful with all that money, which they have not demonstrated that they are at least willing to do. They're not willing to do anything useful with that. Uh, Imagine you have this tax-the-rich policy, and you think you're going to get that pothole in your street filled, finally, after all these years. After all those times you almost bust your damn tire on that motherfucker. You, 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 we've taxed the rich, and now that shit's finally going to get filled. And then this guy, and all of Congress, just blows it on Ukraine. And it's like, okay, well, what was the purpose of that? Because, make no mistake, had we been taxing the rich we still wouldn't we still wouldn't have, have high speed rail we still wouldn't have not crumbling infrastructure we still wouldn't have that pothole fixed this is a policy i believe to be a distraction a distraction that creates class conflict when the true answer lies in abolishing the income tax but that would require decreasing the size of the government and forcing the government to adhere to a budget not not the fake phony budget where the government says oh here's the amount of money we're going to spend this year but they don't actually abide by see now if you or me had a budget and we just blew past that we'd be broke we'd be insolvent and that's where our government's heading towards and we're all going to pay the price for that in the coming depression but if you take away the government's ability to steal money from the people certainly out of your incomes like Uh, I'll leave the sales tax, although I'd prefer that be a purely state thing. And then the government, the federal government can be funded by tariffs. Now, you might think that there's no way a a modern economy could run on that. A modern government could run on that. But yes, it can if it's small, which is the whole point of conservatism. Small government. A small government can operate perfectly fine off of tax revenues, certainly for a country of our size. Something to think about. Abolish the income tax. That's the real solution here. Because if everyone's paying zero, no one cares what the rich is paying. And those dollars mean a hell of a lot more to regular working class people than they will to the rich man. Not that the rich man doesn't care about his money. Or certainly the people who stay rich, they care about their money. That's why they're still rich. But a $10,000 means more To a working class family than it does to someone who lives in a mansion. It means more to them than it does to a family of doctors. Who make well over $150,000 a year with their salaries combined. The zero tax agenda is the agenda for the United States. So, that's what I had in my mind when he went through the whole make the rich pay their fair share thing. It's not going to accomplish anything useful but uh, move on from that, because afterwards he he got into oil and i uh, I said oh my goodness there's no way he's gonna do what I think he's gonna do. And you know what he didn't. I thought he was gonna blame Putin's price hike on well I, I, for the high ass gas price we've been paying, but he didn't. He did something even crazier than even I was willing to not give him credit for. He said (laughs) he attempted to blame energy companies for the gas prices, and he, he specifically brought up them not reinvesting their record profits, and that was a major point of contention, right off the heels of the tax the rich thing. He said they had record profits last year, and that they weren't reinvesting, in. He said that when he asked them why they told him, well, you're going to get rid of fossil fuels in 10 years. So we there's no point in reinvesting here. And he, he, he glossed over that one real quick. It made too much sense, but yeah, it's what I, <laughs> it, it's, I'm laughing because it, it's so silly that he didn't see this coming. Well, at the very least, he doesn't appear to have seen this coming when he's having these supposed conversations with them, you penalize them for having energy production in the United States because you want to move away from their specific type of energy production. You want to have the green agenda. You want to abolish fossil fuels. You want to abolish uh, gasoline cars in favor of electric cars. You're going to go all electric. And you you want wind and solar to power it all? You you don't even want like, you know, oil, natural gas, coal to power the power stations. You want green green everything. Well, okay, what reason do we have to reinvest in an an energy infrastructure that you are actively seeking to undermine? What reason would they have to do that? They have no reason. They have no incentive. And I'll get into the other reason why he's, he is the one to blame for these high energy prices, but he tried to blame the energy companies for this. And I'm not like some spokesperson for them, but let's just uh, think about what's going on here. Well, yeah, and he's clearly attempted to blame them for the high gas prices, but the problem is that he himself is to blame on day one of his so-called presidency, he stopped construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. So we're not even allowed to have oil from Canada, our our ally. We're not even allowed to have that. So we can't have oil from Canada. Then he canceled the renewal of drilling leases on federal land. So literally the, the thing that they would have been investing, reinvesting their record profits in drilling, they were not allowed to do on federal land, courtesy of his day one executive orders. So, uh, he's the problem. (laughs) He's the problem. The energy companies were more than happy to expand drilling operations in the United States. And they were doing so to such an extent that we became energy independent again for the first time in decades. They would have continued doing that. And they would have been rewarded for all the energy that they were producing with the war in Ukraine driving the international oil price per barrel up to a hundred dollars a barrel. They would have had plenty of oil to sell. And we probably would have seen a small increase here at home as they, more of the oil was going overseas. than here we would we we would have been bitching and mourning and complaining about paying dear heavens, two and a half dollars a gallon. Oh, my pocketbook. <laughs> that would have been the situation in America, but no, uh, and they still would have made record profits doing so, ch- just perhaps not by the same margins. It, it the price of oil internationally was just that high, and perhaps all their energy production would have caused the price to come down a little, easing the burden on our these countries that we call our allies. And by competing with Russia directly in the energy markets, oh, there you, if if your goal is to go fight Russia. And sanction, well, you have American energy to replace them with. Oh, wow. Look, look how it all just works out when we mind our own business, except I would prefer doing that even without being adversarial to the Russians. But he's the problem. He sabotaged them. They would have done this. We would have been energy independent. We'd be paying two to two and a half dollars a gallon when the war breaks out and they still would have been making record profits and they'd still be reinvesting those profits here in more energy production here in the United States. To take advantage of the high energy prices. We would have had an even bigger energy boom. Especially if OPEC had followed through on their decision to cut oil production. We would have been thanking them for doing so. We just would have eaten up their market share. It would have been that simple. They would have been doing the thing that he's complaining about. Complaining about them not doing. Which is reinvesting here in the United States. Energy production here in the United States, but he sabotaged them with his policies And he's not going to reverse those policies either. So it's like, okay You're gonna blame them for the problem that you created and you're not going to help solve it You're just gonna tax them. Okay. Okay, and then we're gonna be wondering where all the energy went. Well, you made this the case You did that But I guess we're just blaming corporations for problems that the government created. And then we're going to use those problems that the government creates to justify yet more government. Good heavens. Good heavens. Oh, my goodness. But then Biden got into a a brief discussion about the deficit and claimed his administration brought down the deficit by 1.7 trillion dollars. Now, I can partially believe that because a large part of the deficit from uh, 2020, at least, was stimulus checks. So, perhaps, and there was another stimulus package in 2021, I believe, or at least a number of business stimulus packages. So, it's possible that he did bring it down by 1.7 trillion dollars. We're still in a deficit, so it's you know, it's less worse than it was, if it's true. But he said he brought it down by $1.7 trillion. And he also got into a discussion about the debt ceiling and how America, and how the deficit, uh, bring the deficit down was the responsible thing to do, fiscally responsible. And then he said, right after saying that bringing down the deficit was the fiscally responsible to do, thing to do, he said that, it's also fiscally responsible to raise the debt set. and it's, uh, I'm like, what? How? How do those two go together? You're gonna lower the deficit but increase the debt limit? What? No, that. I again, if you or I had some credit card debt, and I, I do not like debt at all. I I don't I don't do debt. That's just I fundamentally cannot conceptualize debt. I like to be solvent, I don't know about you, but if you or I had some credit card debt, or maybe you have student loan debt, you know, maybe you have a car note, you're paying it off, a mortgage, whatever you have, if you had debt and you weren't making those interest payments so the debt gets bigger, and I'm using that as a reason why the debt gets bigger because, in the government it's a little different. So the debt keeps getting bigger because you got this thing that you couldn't afford to pay for. And so the debt gets bigger, even though you're, you're giving your part-time check to, to pay for it. And it's just not enough. If you or I said, okay, well, I'm just going to take out a bigger loan and then still not pay it off. You or I would end up filing for bankruptcy. Ooh. You or I would end up financially insolvent, and we'd have that house taken from us, that card taken from us. Uh, we wouldn't have the credit card taken from us, but we'd certainly have a whole lot of money taken from us. If you or I were in the situation, and our response to being in debt and being in a deficit was to just keep borrowing more money to pay the bills, well, at some point we crash. But because it's the government and the, the room for error is just so much bigger, there's no urgency here to prevent the crash. And what's going to happen is the Great Depression 2.0. It's going to be terrible. So that was just a gripe I had with one of his statements. Uh, but there was also one part where he talked about Medicare being allowed to sunset. And he was saying that this was something that the Republicans wanted to do. He said some Republicans want Medicare to be allowed to sunset. And he was namely, well, he actually didn't name it. He was most likely alluding to Rick Scott's proposals to cut spending across the board, which included cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And you've probably seen some of those videos surfaced on YouTube, where he, Rand Paul, and a number of other Republicans got up there and talked about the need to address the debt. Uh, But however... When he did this, he Biden tried to pass it off as a Republican thing. Uh, you know, he said, oh, it, it's he doesn't believe it's a majority or even a large number. But even though he said that the, the the cat had been let out the bag and this set off a whole wave of protests within the crowd. You had, I believe, Marjorie Taylor Greene calling him a liar and you could hear it uh, throughout the crowd. So she, she must have been very loud. I'll say that much. But with this wave of protest from the Republicans, and they were all having their hissy fit. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Uh, but however, he used that moment to corner the Republicans into publicly pledging not to cut funding for Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security. He got them to stand up to support seniors immediately after that, you know, say Uh, supporting seniors being equated to not cutting those programs and they stood up and clapped for him and i'm like oh my okay well that's just a fat l for fiscal conservatism and it's not like i'm opposed to helping the seniors myself but come on now these shouldn't be entitlements they shouldn't be entitlements like we could probably lower the cost of medical uh, expenses through deregulation and lower taxes. And perhaps by allowing people to keep more of their incomes, by getting rid of income taxes, they would be able to afford these types of things instead of everyone having to lean on insurance. Because, And the, I've thought about this as well. I think the insurance might actually be the problem, similar to how... Uh, Government loans are the reason why colleges keep going up in their price to the point where it's disconnected from what the people going to college can actually afford. I think insurance is playing a similar role in the medical space where your medical bills are not remotely attached to what you can afford, but what your insurance can afford. Now this now this is more wild speculation here based on my thoughts regarding college and the price of college, so I'm not as solid in my opinion on this as I am about college, but perhaps abolishing insurance companies might help to solve the cost issue of medical expenses. Because the medical companies and the hospitals don't have your insurance to lean on for their money, well, their procedures have to be something you can afford, and I believe that would radically drive down prices in the United States. Now, that's speculation, that's more of a theory than it is, you know, me getting to the bottom of what's happening here, but I think it's something worth looking into. And if necessary, something worth doing. That's my thoughts on that, but Social Security should not be an entitlement, right? Right? but the government stole from your pocket the government stole from your retirement account and never bothered to put the money back we don't need social security to be in retirement if you can give a hundred billion dollars to ukraine you can fund everyone's social security and my solution is to put people's retirement accounts into their hands not the government so then the government can't steal from them again a privatization of your retirement account if you will except it's linked to you specifically you already have the infrastructure your social security number is your social security number and you're supposed to protect it almost with your life so you just individualize the retirement accounts after you fully fund them to what they are owed you pass a bill you're gonna deficit spend anyway you may as well do something useful with it but i'll digress it's a lot simpler, this issue is a lot simpler than we make it out to be, but, and the same goes with student loan debts, potentially even, based on my thoughts that I've shared with you, potentially even the cost of medical, something to think about, but, he, uh, he he did that, he straight up ignored the, the China balloon fiasco, and, you know, he should, I'll give him that, he should, and I swear that this whole thing was blown way out of proportion, And you know, it really ballooned into something that it wasn't. (laughs) But another point of his speech was education and the need to increase the education level of American citizens. And he wants the government to provide preschooling, pay for two years of community college and increase the salaries of teachers. So massive expansion of government when what we really need is massive reductions in the size of government and we'd see some solid improvements in the quality of life. He also talked about the aftermath of COVID, the spike in crime, which began in 2020. And I think he's uh, dancing around the very obvious BLM riots that took place during that year, which (laughs) perhaps, perhaps might have caused that spike in crime. And he used that to pivot to criminal justice reform and violating the second, uh, I mean, gun control and gun safety measures. Blatantly lying about what gun owners did and didn't approve of, he said they approved of a bump stock ban, and well, no, 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 bump stock ban. He said they approved of red flag laws and stricter background checks, and I'm like, they do not agree with that at all. <laughs> they, they don't believe in that at all. They would, they would rather the gun show loophole exist than do that shit. At least the hardcore 2A people are. Which I myself would be. Uh, And who does gun control help? It helps the criminal. Because they don't abide by the law to get the gun anyway. (laughs) Your law-abiding ass is the one left ass out in (laughs) in the wind. And every time there's a mass shooting, just ask yourself, how differently would that have gone if just a handful of people in the crowd were armed? And I imagine that your imagination will take you to the same place that my imagination does. The shooter gets shot and fewer people end up dead. He touted his support for Ukraine making the case that stopping Russia and making Europe safer makes us all safer in the United States, even though the reality of the situation is he's put the Europeans in a very, very precarious situation by getting involved in this war against Russia, and then having the Europeans go along with the intervention. And I was going to say forcing them, but that would be a rather extreme exaggeration given how gung-ho a lot of them were to get involved initially. Now, they have their reservations now, but no one no one wants to stop giving the money to the Ukrainians. No one wants to stop giving weapons and aid to the Ukrainians. Even though you're starting to get people in the various militaries of the NATO countries saying, yeah, it's not going to get there in time. The, the aid's not going to get there in time. And even if it did, we wouldn't have the time to train them to use it. And what do you mean by that? What do you mean you don't have the time? Isn't the war going to go on forever? Aren't you going to bleed Russia dry? You you can't bleed Russia dry after just one year of fighting. What do you mean you don't have the time? Ah, they don't think there's going to be a Ukraine when this is over. Because if Ukraine survives as a rump state, you can still give them all this equipment. You can still train them on how to use it. You can still train them. You can still arm them, equip them, and... Make sure that they're the the greatest thorn in Russia's side ever. You can still do that. But if there is not a Ukraine, then you can't do that. So these leaders and these militaries who are starting to come out now have sort of showed their hand in where they think this war is going to go. They don't think there's going to be a Ukraine either. Perhaps I'm not alone in my belief. But only time will tell. But, and and that's before we get into the fact that when this war is over, you're going to have an enlarged and mobilized Russia, because part of this military expansion is going to be permanent. They're going to maintain a force of a million and a half men. And a lot of their war production is going to stick around. So they have lots of Ampile stockpiles of munitions and weapons and guns and tanks and artillery to be able to fight all of NATO at once. Uh, even though I I think they could do it now, given what they've demonstrated in Ukraine and how much aid has been given to the Ukrainians, the Russians could probably pull off an attack against all of NATO right now or win a war. If I don't think they'd be the one to attack. They could do it. They've demonstrated they could do it in Ukraine. So. He Biden's saying that supporting Ukraine has made Europeans in America and the world a safer place is just objectively not true. It's made it a more dangerous world. If the fact that everyone's been obsessed about the potential for nuclear war and World War III is any indication, we are not safe. The world is not safer. Everyone is afraid of what might happen if any one of you oversteps your boundaries, And does something unacceptable, like attacking Russia directly by intervening directly in Ukraine, which is something that Poland and the Baltics are increasingly leaning towards. And we'll see how this goes down. But Europe ain't safe, and America being involved in this mess doesn't make us safer. It's dragged us along for the ride. Now we're in greater danger than we were before. My goodness, and he said we need border security, and I'm surprised he even uttered those words, because neither he nor his borders are, slash vice failure, Kamala Harris, have even seen the border, let alone gone there. When Biden, when Biden came close to the border, they cleared out all the homeless people and all the, the illegal immigrants from the streets before he got there, for the for the photo op. So. So that regular people who weren't paying attention to the border and the border crisis and who dismiss it as a a Trump thing couldn't see the problem that this guy created with his policy and couldn't see what Trump and the Republicans were talking about when they say we need to get a grip on the border. That was as close as they got to the border. They've never been there and they do everything in their power to not have border security. I mean, we have people pouring in by the hundreds of thousands and this administration has done everything in its power to enable illegal immigration canceling the border wall construction allowing illegal immigrants to access federal aid and support programs preventing border patrol from doing their job they they do everything in their power not to and, and they bus they bus the illegal immigrants around the country when they come here, they don't, they don't bust them back to Mexico. They don't bust them back to Honduras or Guatemala. No, they, they bust them to random communities throughout the United States. And that's perfectly acceptable until the communities they bust them to put them on a plane to Martha's Vineyard. Then all of a sudden, it's this massive issue. We don't have the resources to accommodate you. Oh, heavens me. The, the poor babies. Think about the children. Except if Martha's Vineyard doesn't have the resources to accommodate these people what makes you think small town America can it's just insane and uh, and then he talked about fentanyl but the fentanyl's coming across the border now you have the US government to blame for that cuz government agencies fund this and fund these people to come here And it creates a a negative feedback loop because then that money goes to the cartels and the coyotes who human traffic people across our border. And a lot of that is sex trafficking as well. Drug trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking, it all goes down at the border. And this guy is complicit in, in enabling that to continue. I'm surprised he even uttered the words border security. But I'm happy he did because I get to talk about it and make fun of him. But that's an issue. That is a serious issue. Uh, you, you just, you can't talk about border security without talking about all these things that this guy is responsible for. How can you, how can you talk about border security when the lady sitting behind him, uh, again, his border czar, Kamala Harris, has never been there and has never mentioned the border. She doesn't even talk about the border. She doesn't even talk about the border. She's done literally nothing. She's in charge of this, and this she's in in charge of this whole operation, and she's allowed to just fall apart, and we're all just sitting there clapping for these people like they did something? No, 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 and nowhere. So, all in all, I'll say what I believe the State of the Union is. Biden says it's strong. I'd say it's ah, aight. And it's, ah, that's what the State of the Union is. But more importantly, the state of this union is as follows. We need Trump back. And pronto. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We have very interesting stories, and it was nice to get away from Ukraine again, we'll probably be right back next week, but that's all I've got, and, uh, you know, the world really does change, it really does change, we get to see how people pretend that the past didn't happen, and we could see the results of certain policies, and people paying the blame on other people, and by people I mean Biden, and by other people I mean Literally everyone else for the failures of his policies. But, you know, you know however the world changes, however that changes may uh, come about, we might see Germany leave NATO. We might see it. But however it happens, you and I will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.